You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, Ephesians chapter 2. Again, we're walking through the section that goes from verses 11 down through verse 22. And uh, looking at this idea of the power of God demonstrated in the life of the church and the fact that he has brought these two groups together and made them one. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to read from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, and uh, read down through verse uh, 18. And uh, this is what Paul writes. He says, For he, Jesus, is our peace, who has made both groups one and has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus making peace and that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross thereby slaying the enmity and he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who are near for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Uh, it was just a marvelous thought as you're walking through those few verses. How often it mentions this idea of peace and the removal of the enmity or the hostility. Uh, and, and just for kicks and giggles, uh, let me read this whole thing again to you. Just so it's just so you hear it. But listen, listen to this thundering undertone of peace and hostility. Peace and hostility. And the fact that we have hostility, but Jesus is and is making peace. So listen to this again. For Jesus is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. That And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing that hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. So again, you have this idea that there are these two groups. You have the Jews and you have the Gentiles. And as we've been walking through countless times thus far, these two groups hated each other. It wasn't like, well, I just really dislike them and I wish they would just leave me alone. This is, there was a deep hatred and just frustration and, as Paul would use, hostility between these two groups. And I know I've given you the quote countless times, but I just think it's such a fun idea. That in the mind of the Jew, the only reason why God created the Gentile was because the Gentiles were going to be the fuel for the fires of hell. (laughs) Praise the Lord. And again... If that is your viewpoint of a group of people, there is great hostility. I mean, if you thought our racial tensions are strong today, I mean, that was intense back then. I mean, if you think some of our religious divisions between the denominations is is sharp today, I mean, could you imagine what it was like back then? Now, as you walk through the passage again in Ephesians chapter 2, you have this incredible declaration that Jesus is our peace. He doesn't give us peace as much as he is our peace. And so if you need peace, what you need is not for God to give you this pill called peace. You need Jesus to be planted smack dab in the middle of your situation. And wherever Jesus is planted or wherever Jesus is at, he is causing peace to happen. Why? Because he himself is our peace. Now, last week we were looking at this passage in chapter 2, verse 14, and looking at this idea that Jesus is our peace. And we talked about the fact that peace is not this idea of like sitting on a beach drinking lemonade, though that sounds so relaxing right now. And that seems peaceful, doesn't it? I mean, wow, just to be on a warm beach with the waves crashing and a, you know, a cup of lemonade or iced tea or mix them together, right? You know, and just have the Arnold Palmer thing and just, just enjoy this relaxation, and just, ah, oh, peace. But that's not peace. Right? That's a facade of peace. Well, what is true peace? And again, we walked through this last time, but as you, as you look at this idea of peace, in the Greek it has this idea of harmonious relationships. 
in the Hebrew, that word shalom, which is what Paul's picking up on, is this beautiful word. It has so many layers to it. And that word shalom, again, has this idea of removal of enemy faction, has this idea of well-being, health, prosperity, security, soundness, completeness, wholeness. All that idea is wrapped up in this idea of shalom. And again, what is beautiful about this whole <clears throat> passage is the fact that Jesus is our peace, verse 14, that he is making peace, verse 15, and he is proclaiming peace, verse 17. And as he's doing all this, again, the context of the peace is relationship. And isn't it beautiful that the context of this specific peace that God is wanting to do is all in the, <clears throat> all in the context of relationship? What is God desirous for? Reconciliation, life, relationship. And he is bringing about a restoration, a peace in the midst of relationship. Why? There's these two groups who hate each other. And what is he doing? He's, bringing, uh, he's removing that hostility. He's removing the faction. He's bringing completeness and wholeness and togetherness between the two groups. So again, that was all last week. And we were looking last week at this idea that when we're, when we're talking about peace, <clears throat> there are three distinct relationships that he is dealing with. And again, this is just review. But number one, he's dealing with the relationship between us and him. That God is removing the hostility that we have with God. And he's bringing redemption and that reconciliation between us and Jesus. That there's been this great divide. And what, what is God doing? He's bringing peace where there's never been peace. He's bringing forgiveness and redemption where we never had hope before. Uh, not only is it <clears throat> peace between us and God, but it's also peace within ourselves. And wouldn't it be amazing if there was a soundness, a completeness, a wholeness, a health, even within us, that there's not this division, that there's not this unrest, that there isn't even a hostility within us? And then thirdly, is this whole idea of peace between us and the people around us. Now, I gave you a verse last week, and I just wanted to reread it because I just think it's a powerful enunciation. But 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that passage because of the fact that here is the God of peace who is desiring to sanctify us completely. And that same word for completely has this idea of wholeness to it, which is what the whole idea of shalom is. So may the God of wholeness and completeness and shalom, this peace, sanctify you with peace, that he might bring a restoration and a completeness and a wholeness in your life. How? Well, between you and God, between you and yourself, and between you and other people. And wouldn't it be amazing if God could reach into your life and remove all the hostility and all the division and all the dividing walls and all the... And wouldn't it be amazing if your life could actually walk forward with peace? Not the facade of peace in the sense of sitting on a beach and drinking a cup of lemonade, but talking about genuine peace where you're living from a state of wholeness and completeness and the relationships in your life are, are being restored and they have health and your, your life with God is intimate and rich. Why? Because he has brought peace. Yet most of us, even in the church, live with unrest and division and hostility. That there's even a war going on inside of us where we're, we're, we long to do that which God is calling us to do, and yet we have all the stuff that needs healing and sanctification. And, and we look at our relationships around us, and they're not complete, and they're not whole, and there's, there's a whole bunch of brokenness. But you realize that if Jesus is in the middle of, that, of your life, he longs to bring peace. Now, as you come into our passage, <clears throat> so that was all review. But when you come into our passage, again, there's this overwhelming emphasis that these two groups, because of Jesus, who is our peace, these two groups are becoming one. Now, look at this. It's, it's mentioned three times. In verse 14, it says that he is our peace, and he has made both groups one. Why? Because of his 
because of him in his flesh. He's, he's abolished, right? This enmity in his flesh. Uh, in verse 15, he goes halfway down and he says that in himself, he might create or make the two into one new man, thus making peace. And then the last one is in verse 16, and he says he's reconciled them both to God into one body through the cross. So get this idea. There's three instances in this passage where he says that here are these two groups who've always been at hostility with one another, who do not like each other, who hate each other, and what is he doing with those groups? He is peace. And so his overwhelming power is working in these groups and he's bringing them together and he's making them one. Not two sides of a coin one, one. Not, well, there's an apple and there's an orange. They're both fruit. He's making them one. Are you getting this? You're saying that's impossible. I know. Which is why this is a demonstration of the power of God. That somehow, because Jesus is who he is, because of God's overwhelming power moving and acting in the world, and because he is our peace, you realize where there's always been hostility and division and and enmity and, and the whole enemy faction kind of stuff, you realize that he is willing and desirous to take two groups who are hostile with each other and bring them together, and not just so that they can endure with one another, but so that they become one. How is that done? Oh, he says it's in his flesh, in himself, and through the cross. And all that language in in all three of those instances that, again, verse 14, he's made us both one in his flesh. Verse 15, he created in himself one new man. And verse 16, he reconciled both to God in one body through the cross. The whole reason this is even possible is because of Jesus and the cross. That what he was doing on the cross is he was removing the enmity, that enemy faction. He was removing that hostility so that the two groups could become one. Some of you look tired this morning. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) Uh, It's interesting in the verse 14 one, it says that he has made us both one. That word for made is the Greek word poieo. And again, we've gone over poyeo, but poyeo is that word where he is creating something, but it's, it's from the internals of who he is. It's the idea of like an artist or a painter or a sculptor or a poet. And the idea is that it wasn't that God made them in the sense of like, all right, I guess I better do this. And he goes out and, you know, paints a barn. The idea is that there's this desire, there's this passion within his heart that God just like, I just can't help myself. And like a, a master painter who just goes to the canvas and creates a masterpiece, you realize he is doing that by bringing two groups together. That's the word. That he's made them both one. Meaning that this was not some external thing. This was the creative, just the flow of his life from within himself. This is his passion and desire, folks. Uh, In verse 15, it says that he created in himself one new man. That word there for create, I love this. The word therefore create means, it's the idea of to found a people or to to found a city. In other words, I'm going to establish a city or to create or to completely change or transform or to make habitable. Do you know what God is doing? He is creating, he's forming one new people group. He is founding a brand new city. He is establishing, he's changing, he's transforming And what has always been hostility with two groups, he's bringing them together and he's establishing one brand new deal. Do you know what the brand new deal is? We call it Christianity. The family of God, the body of Christ. And yeah, there's a lot of members in the body of Christ, but there's one body. And I keep, I keep coming back to this idea, but you realize that what was happening in the early church as a demonstration of the power of God is not that there were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, there were Christians. And when you get to heaven, you realize there is not going to be a distinct distinction between Jew and Gentile. 
That's phenomenal. If I can put it in our modern context, there is not going to be denominational sectors of heaven. And I know some of our jokes seem to make it sound like there's going to be, but I'm sorry, there are no Baptists in heaven. There's not. Nor is there any Charismatics in heaven. And there's no Lutherans in heaven. And there's no Presbyterians in heaven. And there's no Methodists in heaven. And there's no Mennonites in heaven. You realize that in heaven there are Christians. And there's not the Baptist quarter, right? And there's not the, you know... In other words, this is the reform section. This is the non-reform section. This is the non-denominational section. This is the charismatic section. There's no sections in heaven, folks. All the dividing walls have been removed. And there's not Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian. There's not Baptist Christian and Presbyterian Christian and Lutheran Christian. And there's Christian. How's that going to happen? Jesus. Now, I understand why we have denominations today. I do. I get it. But what a sad testimony of the body of Christ. That, hey, if we are, if we are going to spend eternity together, you would think we should start spending now together. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons I love Ellerslie. is because we can focus on Jesus. And isn't it amazing if we focus on the nuances, we get into arguments. We focus on Jesus, we find life and unity. And, and yeah, you may, you may differ in a few points from me. I, that's fine. And you may say, well, I interpret that passage slightly different. So be it. You can have your opinion. I can have my opinion. As long as Jesus is the center. And I know that some of our denominational backgrounds have this idea of, well, unless you're in my little group, you're you're out. Because you're right. There are no of those groups in heaven. There's ours. (laughs) You realize the requirement to get to heaven is not to join a denomination. I hate to break that to you. There's none of that in Scripture. What's the requirement to get to heaven? Relationship with Jesus. He must be the Lord and Savior of your life. And if you have him, woo, you're in. If you don't have him, I'm sorry, you're out. Because this is eternal life, says Jesus, that they might know you. Not information that they actually have relationship with you. And if you have that, you're in, folks. And you realize there are going to be some Baptists who sneak in. Sure. And there are going to be some Presbyterians who are going to eat. I mean, they're just, they're going to squeeze in. And those Methodists, woo, those Methodists, they're going to find a way to get in. And you realize that when we get to heaven, we will not care what denomination we came from. And by the way, denominations have only been around for a few hundred years. So if you're saying it has to be from one denominational stream, what you're saying is that everyone up until your point is destined for hell. That's not true, folks. In fact, I love what Paul said. He's talking to the church in Corinth, and he says, hey, this group says we're with Peter. This says we're with Apollos. This group says we're with Paul. This group says, what are they doing? They're creating denominations. And Paul says, what, what are you talking about? There is not a division in the body. That as a body, we are to love. And we are one in Christ. Now, I know that's stepping on a lot of toes. I get it. And I'm not saying throw out your denomination. I'm not saying that at all. But you've got to realize that, hey, you are going to spend eternity with people who love Jesus, who may not have all the tenets that you believe. And they may not actually look like you. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Sorry. But that's true. <laughs> and what would happen if we would allow Jesus to be peace today? Even amongst the denominations. You realize, I, 
this is totally off topic, but in, in John, this is so convicting to me. Uh, in, in John, Jesus is talking in the upper room and he's talking through this idea of, hey, you realize that the world is going to look at you and they're going to crave to have relationship with me. Why? Because they see the love that you guys have one for another. Right? So he's saying this in the upper room. And then in John 17, he breaks into the high priestly prayer and he begins to make some statements that is so overwhelmingly convicting. Especially in light of this whole idea of peace and removing the hostility and all that kind of stuff. In John 17, uh, he, he says in verse 20, <clears throat> Jesus says, I do not pray that these, for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus is praying for you. It's an encouraging thought. Verse 21, and what is he praying? That they all may be one. Do you know what the word one in Greek means? One. Well, how one are we as the body of Christ supposed to be? Ah, Jesus tells us. He says <clears throat> that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Excuse me? How one are we supposed to be as the body of Christ? The same oneness that Jesus had with the Father. How one were they? They were one. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, Jesus says, may they also be one in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Down in verse 23, I and them and you and me. And you start to get this tone in this high priestly prayer that what is Jesus' desire? That we'd be one. And somehow, when we are one, all the world knows. Which means what? If we are not one, all the world knows. Something else. Now, I'm not calling for a removing of the denominations. It's not my desire. But wouldn't it be amazing if God could remove all the dividing walls of hostility and bring forth peace. And how is he doing that? In himself. And he's really creating, he's making one new group. He is founding a brand new deal. He's establishing a brand new city. He's completely changing this thing. What is he creating? Christians. And no longer is there a Gentile thing and a Jewish thing, now there's a Christian thing. And this is a brand new deal, folks. And you realize that to get in, you've got to lose your identity of who you always have been. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, Behold, all things have gone. Hey, the old is gone. The new has come. Meaning what? You have a brand new identity. What's your new identity? Jesus. So what is the city? What is the people he's founding? Christians. What's that location? It's Jesus, folks. And he's removing all that dividing stuff that we've always claimed, which we're going to look more at next week. But the whole dividing wall thing, you, you begin to recognize is there no longer is the Jew and the Gentile. Now there's Christian. You've got to get a hold of that. And some of you don't believe me, so let me give you a few verses. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. It says, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So that thing that God was doing in Abraham, guess what he's desiring to do? He's desiring to do that in the Gentiles because of Christ. Galatians 3.28, Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. There is neither Baptist or Lutheran or Methodist. Sorry, that part wasn't in there. But <laughs> there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know what the word one in Greek means? One. What is he doing? He's removing all the barriers. That in Christ we are one, folks. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but it is faith working through love. Galatians 6.15 For in Christ Jesus, 
Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails nothing but a new creation. He's establishing a brand new deal, folks. Ephesians 3, 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers, get this, the Gentiles are to be partakers of his promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, for as we have many members in one body, by the way, do you know what the word one in Greek means? One. But all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 2 Corinthians 5.17 again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a brand new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You realize that God is doing this brand new thing in himself. What is it? Christian. And Paul says that in himself, because of the cross, he's removing all the enmity and all the hostility and he's bringing them together. He's founding a brand new city, a brand new people. He's changing this thing completely. And what is it all focused on? Jesus. One of my all-time favorite verses in Scripture, which I think is probably the best enunciation of the entirety of the gospel, is Romans 11, verse 36. If you want to summarize all of Scripture in one verse, I think it's a Romans eleven thirty six. If you want to see God's heart and his passion for your life and for your marriage and for your church and for the body of Christ, it's Romans eleven thirty six. What does Romans eleven what does Romans eleven thirty six say? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Do you know what your life is supposed to be about? From him, through him, to him. What's the church supposed to be about? From him, through him, to him. If you're married, what's your marriage about? From him, through him, to him. What is is the church supposed to be a picture of? From him, through him, to him. This whole thing is because of him, it's from him. He's he's the one founding this thing. He's the one creating it. How do we sustain it? It's through him. How do we keep this going? It's through him. What's the resource? It's through him. What's the power? It's through him. And what's the whole purpose? To him. It's for his praise and glory. Wouldn't it be neat if your life was defined by from him, through him, to him, for his glory? And if you get married, your marriage is defined by from him, through him, to him, for his glory. And your church is all about from him, through him, to him, for his glory. And wouldn't it be neat if the body of Christ could somehow come together and this wasn't about the dividing walls and this wasn't about the separation stuff. This was about a from him, through him, to him, for his glory. Now, if you look back in verse 14 of Ephesians, it says that he is our peace and he's made both groups one and has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. Or he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. It's interesting, that word that he has broken down. I love this. The word broken down in the Greek means to destroy, to do away with. It's not that he's taken the wall and moved the wall to another location. He's taken the wall, put a bunch of dynamite underneath it, and exploded it, which is not a word. He's exploded it? Is that the grammar? Is that the right grammar word? He has made it explode. There you go. He's made it explode into a million pieces. You cannot put this wall back together again. Wouldn't that be amazing if he could do that with your hostility and your enmity and all your relationships? That it's not that he just removes the wall for a season, but that he completely abolishes it. He removes it. He destroys it. Now, it's interesting, and it's kind of hard to see this in the English because most translations don't do this, but in the English, there's a double emphasis on the wall. In the Greek, there are two words here being used for this idea of the wall. One is this idea of a separating wall, which is a wall in the middle of an area with the intention to divide parties or groups. So you go back several decades, and we have this wall in Berlin. What was the purpose of the Berlin Wall? To divide groups. And it was a wall in the middle of a a city to divide groups. That's this idea. Now, again, when you get into this, some some scholars suggest that it may have been that little wall in the outer courts of the court of the Gentiles in the temple. So if a Gentile wanted to come and worship at the temple, they could come. 
But they could only go so far. And then there was this little wall all the way around the court of the Gentiles. And they found these plaques in archaeology that have said, hey, for a Gentile to go past this wall meant certain death. So don't cross the barrier. And someone says, well, maybe that's not what Paul's talking about. Maybe he's talking about the veil of the temple. Maybe he's just talking about the fact that it's the law itself. Regardless, there is a dividing wall. So there's that idea of the separating wall. And then Paul clarifies it, and he says, the fence. So you have the separating wall or the dividing wall, the fence. And the fence is giving content to that dividing wall. So what are we talking about in terms of the dividing wall? The fence. And what is the fence idea? Well, in the fence idea in Greek, the word has this idea of a fence that secures or encloses an area for protective purposes. So again, what's interesting is that there's this double emphasis. That it's not just he's removed the wall, he's removed the wall that is the fence. And it's this double emphasis on the fact that there is a separation going on. And what has he done? Oh, he's peace, folks. And isn't it interesting, when Jesus gets in the middle of this thing, he who is peace destroys. But what does he destroy? The division. Because he's peace. So here is peace who shows up, and when peace shows up, the peace destroys. Which I think is hilarious. That is a great irony. But the peace that is destroying is destroying all the stuff that divides. And he's making these two groups one. And what has been full of enmity and hostility and enemy faction is no longer there, which means they can be brought together. Here's a question for you. Why do we create walls? Think about some of the famous walls, right? You have the Great Wall of China. Uh, You have Hadrian's Wall in England. right? You have the Berlin Wall. There's these great walls throughout history that we've erected. Why do, we, why do we erect walls? Yeah, it's either to keep people out, to keep people in. Uh, sometimes it's to separate the good and the bad. Sometimes it's merely a lack of trust. I don't trust those people over there. So I'm building a wall. Why? Because I don't trust that I can sleep well at night unless I'm protected. So we do it for security Sometimes we, we build the walls because of past experiences of hurt and pain. That here's this enemy force and they've always tried to sneak in and, and kill our women and children. And so therefore, we're putting up a wall. Why? Because they've hurt us in the past. That's not just true socially, folks. That's true inside your heart. And hey, if someone hurts you, what do you do? You build a wall. And you keep people at arm's distance and You don't let people close. Why? Because you don't want to get hurt again. And so we start putting up these barriers and we start putting up these walls. And and hey, if someone's not like you, what do we do? Well, I don't know if we can trust that that group and those people over there. And, And so we start putting up these walls. We do that in religious circles. I spent about a decade in the South and it was interesting to me in the town that I lived in, the town only had, you know, several... Thousands of, you know, like 10, 20,000 people. It was, it was a relatively small town. And yet we had, we had so many churches. I mean, it's a Bible belt, you know. <laughs> so I mean, we had churches all over the place. And, and of a town of, you know, several thousands of people, you realize that we would have like 70 churches for 20,000, 30,000 people. Now, obviously, all those people were not coming to the church. Oh, we need more churches. But you know how sad it is in the, in the Bible Belt to be driving down the road, and there's this one road in the town that I lived in that as you're driving down the road, it's like, oh, there's a church, and then a quarter mile, oh, there's a church, there's a church, there's a church. And there's this corner where there's like a church on every corner. Literally, a church on every corner. And yet they would never talk to each other. They, they would try to beat each other out of service time so they could make it down to Golden Corral before the other group came. So we're going to get out at 11.50 because the Baptists get out at noon and the Presbyterians get out at 12.05. So if we get out at 11.50, we can make it down at Golden Corral or you know, Cracker Barrel or wherever we're going for lunch before they get there. And you know what happens when they get there. And isn't it sad that 
here, here are these different churches who all love Jesus who refuse to talk to each other. What is that? Dividing wall stuff. And hey, they had this, this little tenant, or they had this idea, or they did this, and that, 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 and therefore we create these walls. We do that with racism stuff, folks. Well, yeah, we can't trust that group. Why? Because that group, where well, there's probably one person in that group. We're doing that now with police. Those police. Yeah, there's some bad police out there. There are bad Christians out there. There are bad pastors out there. So do we just put them in one big group and go, Psst. So what do we do? We create walls. What would happen if God began to break down the walls? Well, yeah, but if they break down the walls, I, I'm vulnerable. You're right. If we, break down the, if we break down the walls, I'm unprotected. You're right. But Jesus is your peace. Why do we build walls around cities? Safety, security, protection. But what if you actually had peace with the people next to you? You realize you wouldn't have to have the wall. That you could go back and forth and there's a, a rest. What if you had that in your life? What if you had that in your relationships? What if you had that, <clears throat> whether it's in relationships or whether it's the racism stuff or whether it's in the religious denomination stuff, well, what, what if God began to actually break down the walls? That's hard. Because I know a lot of us have been hurt. And at some point in our life, someone has come in and, and caused chaos. And because of pain and because of brokenness, we want to self-protect ourselves, so what do we do? We build walls. That's understandable. It is. It makes sense to me. But if you have Jesus smack dab in the middle of your life, do you know what he, want, do you know what he wants to do? Bring those things down. Yeah, but that person hurt me. I know, but what if he brought peace? What if he would heal all, all, heal all that? Well, I don't know if I can trust him. What if you could trust Jesus? Well, what if they hurt me again? So what if they hurt you again? I mean, yeah, it matters. I, I, get it. I get it. But if the reason we have walls in our lives and walls in our denominations and walls in our racism and walls in our walls in our walls, if the reason we have the walls is so that we can self-guard and protect and hope to have... How on earth are you going to function? How on earth are you going to enjoy heaven if you drag all your walls up there? You realize your walls will not fit through the gates of heaven. I can't biblically prove that, but I am quite confident that you know, the walls of your life will not fit through the gates of heaven. Which means you're going to have to leave your walls outside the gates of heaven if you want in. Because you know what heaven's going to be marked by? Peace. Do you know why? Jesus is there. What if we would allow that reality to happen right now? You know, your kingdom come on earth as it is up there kind of stuff. What if we would allow the fact that there are no walls in heaven in the sense that there is no divisions, there is no hostility, there is no enmity. What if we begin to experience that in our lives now? What, what if you could take those relationships that are full of brokenness and hurt and pain and allow Jesus to begin to bring down those dividing walls. I'm not saying it's easy. And I understand the moment that the walls start falling down, you are vulnerable. And most of us don't like to be vulnerable. Most of us don't want to be exposed. Most of us don't want to have to trust. Most of us don't want to have to walk in faith. We say we do, but we live as if we don't. But what if we could honestly take our lives before Jesus and say, Jesus, would you bring down the, every wall? Is it possible, Jesus, that maybe I could bring a, be a reconciler of my denomination with the church at large where we all can gather together and worship Jesus? 
And not focus on the divisions, but focus on Christ, who is peace. Jesus, could you do something in my life that would take my relationships that are around me and bring healing and life instead of me keeping everybody at an arm's length? Do you know what the solution to our racism issue is in this country? Jesus. And that issue will not be solved outside of Jesus. Because you can have a facade of peace, but you know how healing and reconciliation takes place? Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, you'll never find true peace. So our culture is looking in the wrong place. Politics. How on earth are we going to get through this? Jesus is your only option. And wouldn't it be neat if God could take every enemy and every hostility that is coming against your life and that he becomes your protection, that he becomes your security, that he becomes your high tower, and you begin to trust him and therefore the walls can come down? Have you ever thought about how on earth is the enemies of your life ever going to experience Jesus if you have walls up? Does that make any sense? If it's those Democrats... Those Baptists, those, whatever the group is for you. How are they going to experience the love and the life of Jesus if you have walls up? Well, they can see it in my life. How are they going to see it in your life if you have walls up? Somehow the walls of your life have to come down so people can see your life. And wouldn't it be neat if that group out there, whatever that group is for you, wouldn't it be neat if they could somehow see your life and Jesus working in your life and somehow want what you have? That's going to take bringing down walls. I just want to wrap up with this idea. I just want to give you a picture in the Old Testament of this whole thing. And it's not a perfect picture, but I think it enunciates this whole idea well. But in Exodus 15, I love this story. The Israelites have just left Egypt and here they are, they're one wandering in the wilderness for three days and they, they've left everything. They've been walking for three days without any water. And they come to Moses and there's a complaint. We need water. Now you realize they've gone too far. They've come too far in the journey to now return. If you've gone three days into the middle of the desert without water, you cannot, you don't have time to go three days back. So you need water. And it better come quick. Because we can't return to where we came from. We're not going to make it. We're not going to survive. And they look around and, oh, there's a body of water right over there. And so out of excitement and glee, they run over there. Some poor guy reaches down in, grabs some water, puts it in his mouth, spits it all out. Because the water is bitter. It's a twisted, it's a twisted thing. It's polluted. It's not as it should be. That's a great picture of our lives. That is water, but it's not real water. Why? Because the water has been polluted and twisted. And so they complain to Moses, and Moses goes to God. And listen to this. This is Exodus 15, verse 24. So the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And Moses cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he threw it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And then down in verse 26, God gives us annunciation in this declaration. And then he says, for I am Jehovah Rapha. I am the God who heals. And God is revealing his character in the passage. God says, do you know who I am? I'm the God who heals. Do you know who I am? I'm the one who restores. Do you know who I am? I'm that which takes the twisted and makes it untwisted. Do you know who I am? I'm that which takes the pollution and makes it sweet. Have you ever had sweet water? Like water that is so pure that it actually tastes sweet. Wouldn't it be interesting in your life? By the way, your life is twisted. Your life has been polluted. Your life is not as it should be. You need Jesus. What was the solution for the bitter waters at Marah? God showed Moses a tree a tree a tree 
a tree. Are you getting this? This is not by accident. This wasn't like, oh, that's an interesting coincidence. No, no, no. It's showing you something. And what did Moses have to do with the tree? Planted in the middle of the waters. And isn't it interesting that the moment that the tree is planted in the polluted waters, that which has been twisted, that which has always been polluted, becomes pure. Not just pure, sweet. You realize that's a picture of the gospel. That your life has always been bitter and twisted and polluted. And when the tree is planted in your life, it's called the cross, that which has always been polluted and twisted becomes not just pure, but sweet. Not just as it should be, but better than as it should be. And God says, you know who I am? I am Jehovah Rapha. I'm the one who heals. And when you follow that idea through, he heals physically and emotionally and spiritually. But you realize that's also true in your relationships? That we have these dividing walls in our lives. We have this hostility and we have this enmity. It's been polluted. It's been twisted. It's been perverted. Do you know what God wants to do? He wants to plant a cross smack dab in the middle of all that. And what has always been polluted and twisted and full of enmity and hostility, God wants to bring down the dividing walls of hostility. And in so doing, he wants to create peace because he is peace. And wouldn't it be neat if God could be Jehovah Rapha in your life? Wouldn't it be neat if God could be Jehovah Rapha in your relationships? That he's bringing restoration and healing He's removing the brokenness. He's removing the dividing walls. He's bringing life and vitality because he is our peace. Now, I understand this doesn't happen overnight. Relationships take time. It takes time to build trust. If you lose trust, you know how you gain trust? Consistency over time. It's the only way to build trust. You can't say, okay, I promise I'll be different. You can say that, but you've got to prove it. So I understand with relationships, this thing is hard. Why? Because you've got you've to prove this thing out. But wouldn't it be neat if God could take your issues <clears throat> and all the hostility within your own personal life and remove all those dividing walls and bring peace? Wouldn't it be neat if God can take your relationships and all the brokenness that you have in your relationships and begin to bring down those walls and bring reconciliation and healing and peace? Wouldn't it be neat if in the church he can remove all the hostility and all the dividing walls of denominations and start to bring peace. Wouldn't it be neat in the, the whole racism issue? Wouldn't it be neat in the whole political thing? Wouldn't it be neat in the whole that the solution actually is Jesus and that what we need in this world more than anything else is Jesus to be planted smack dab in the middle of everything? Because he is peace. He is the only way. Folks, we need that. We need him. Let's pray, Lord. <clears throat> Lord, what would it look like if you removed every hostility, every division, every enmity in my life? Lord, is it possible that you could restore? Is it possible that you can remove the division, the dividing walls? Lord, is it possible that all that barriers that I've created in my personal life to keep people out at, or at an arm's length because I don't want to be hurt again and I don't want to be vulnerable Lord, is it possible that I could trust you in such a way that you begin to bring all that stuff down and that the world can actually see your life in and through me and they don't have to see it through a wall? And Lord, I understand that means I'm going to have to be vulnerable and it means I'm going to have to be unprotected in the sense that I'm, I have access, the world has access, that my enemies have access. But Lord, you say you are our strong tower. And you are our refuge and our strength and our rock. And we've hid ourselves in you. And the enemy cannot touch us if we are in you. But Lord, how is the world going to know unless they hear it? And how are they going to hear it unless I'm willing to go? And how on earth am I going to be willing to go if I have walls up? So Lord, could you bring the walls down? Lord, Lord, through your spirit, could you, could you put your finger on things in my life of areas that I've been not seeking reconciliation or not seeking healing or trying to self-protect myself by establishing some sort of a guard and a protection? Lord, you are Jehovah Rapha and your desire is to plant a cross smack dab in the middle of my life 
and make my bitter water sweet. But Lord, it is also your desire that you would plant a cross smack dab in the middle of my relationships and that you would turn those bitter waters into sweetness. And Lord, I know a lot of us have been hurt. I know that there's been pain. Lord, I know that there's been faction and enmity and hostility, but Lord, if you could take the Jews and the Gentiles and make them one, surely you can do this in my relationships. Surely you can do this in my own life. Surely you can do this in the church. And Lord, I do pray for your bride. Somehow, Jesus, could, could the world see not us, but you? Jesus, could you plant a cross smack dab in the middle of our denominations? In the middle of all of our divisions? And Lord, I understand why we have nuances. And I understand why we why there's been splits and divisions and, and disagreements over, over certain things. But Lord, if we love you, and if we're going to be spending eternity together, oh, could we begin to experience that now? Lord, I don't know what the next step needs to be, except we need you. And Lord, I'm convinced that if you would be planted, if you would be the center of this whole thing, we couldn't help but experience peace. So Lord, don't just give us peace. Be our peace. And you make peace, but you make peace because you are peace. And you proclaim peace, but you proclaim peace because you are peace. So Lord, be our peace. And remove the dividing wall of hostility. Lord, we love you. Give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.